those of you who may not be aware of it, on my visits since November of 2015, we have been working through the Psalter together. We're going to turn our attention away from the Psalms today for one time, although, again, having been away for six months, it doesn't really seem like a diversion to you, I'm sure. But Lord willing, we will take up with Psalm 11 in two weeks on June 11th. But I want to look at a passage, the historical narrative with you this morning. I've been spending some time in Judges devotionally. I don't know what it is about this book that draws me back to it. Some might claim that I have a pension for the graphic, that I'm entertained in some way by the things that we find in this arguably most violent book of the scriptures. But I must tell you that I think what really appeals to me about it is the recurring theme and the, the detail, detailed report that comes in such convicting confession of the sure inclination of sinful man, if left to his own devices, to return to what he desires in his heart that is not in accord with the will of God. Doing evil in the sight of the Lord, or as the last verse of the book says, every man doing what is right in his own eyes, or what, as some translations say, he sees fit to do in his own eyes. Well, the good news is, and indeed the reason that we are gathered here to celebrate our God and worship is the fact that the mercy that sinful man so desperately needs is shown to him by the very God from whom he has estranged himself and against whom he has sinned. And we see again how it is that the badness of man is always eclipsed by the goodness of God. He's a greater Savior than I am a sinner. And we see that foreshadowed in this great historic passage today. So let's turn our attention now to Judges chapter 4. I will read the chapter in its entirety, verses 1 through 24. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, that is Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, and he, that is Jabin, oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaananim near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. 
Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot, and Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabed the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, or come in. Turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went in to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it. Let's again look to him in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for the truth that you have revealed to us in your holy word. We thank you that it has been preserved for us, and lo, these many centuries later, we can hold it in our hands, and as your spirit works, we can have it laid up in our hearts, and by your grace, practice these truths in our lives. As we consider it, we ask for your help. Give aid to the one who preaches. May we have greater understanding. And may anything that would distract us be removed from our minds and hearts. May we be focused upon you and ultimately see only Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. For those who employ what is known as a liturgical calendar, today is the seventh Sunday of Easter. I was thinking about that the other day as I was interacting with a friend of mine who uses the calendar and the lectionary for preaching. And it struck me that in reality, every Sunday ought to be thought of as Easter Sunday. I was reflecting back on my own experience on April 16th, the day upon which Easter fell this year. And for some reason, God was pleased to bless me with an especially memorable day. Uh, Sometimes when you get caught up in all of the responsibilities of that week, things can become a bit rote. But I was uniquely refreshed, I have to admit, this year on Resurrection Lord's Day. It began early in the morning with a beautiful sunrise service at El Segundo Library Park. I was then uh, a participant in robust worship at the First Baptist Church in El Segundo where my dear friend John Svensson is the pastor, and the word was held forth with great power and clarity that day. We enjoyed a fellowship meal. The afternoon was restful. And then in the evening, I worshiped at Pacific Crossroads and heard my friend and colleague Rankin Wilburn preach on John 14.6, and there was a great choral number there at St. John's Episcopal Church. It was just a wonderful day, and I found myself, as evening fell, asking, Why can I not have this joy every Lord's Day? Why can there not be this degree and sense of festivity and celebrity every time I assemble with the people of God? Why does it feel so good today? And and I realized the answer to that question was that it was the end of a week in which in the providence of God, whatever I had read whomever I had heard speak, whether it be at a Good Friday service 
or devotional literature or a sermon from a pulpit, inevitably the faithful servants of God had held forth before me two undeniable realities. That I need salvation. And Jesus, in all of His glory, has accomplished it. Has met every term. It's that balance of holding forth consistently before you the bad news and how the bad news is overtaken by the good news. There, if we hold those two things before us, the problem, the huge problem, and the only solution, then I suggest to you we will have every Lord's Day, and indeed every day, if I might paraphrase the old secular Christmas hymn, we will have that Easter feeling all year. Now, those twin realities are held forth very clearly in this complicated, historic, ancient, yet inspired passage that we just read. This is not the myths of men. This is not what some clever author came up with. No, this is the record of history. And it is yet another example of how all things that have happened point ultimately to the need of man for saving and how it is that God has worked to bring such deliverance about. Charles Spurgeon said it beautifully, I have a great need for Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. Israel experiences here that they have a great need of being taken from the mouth of death, lest they perish. And their God is there to extend once again His mercy and His grace. And you learn as you examine passages like this that God's overwhelming love for us is what can, at the end of the day, alone in the face of any adversity, sustain us. We look at this and we doubt, for example, the sincerity of Israel's repentance. But then you think, well, whom among us is ever truly sorry for what they do that is contrary to God's ways in disobedience to Him? And there's a a sense of relief when we see that, for example, even in His providential workings among men, He brings about those things that ready His people to receive His grace. He prepares them to be recipients of His mercy. They did what was evil in His sight, and verse 2 informs us, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan. You see, the Lord has done this. The Lord is being faithful to His own covenant promises, not only the blessings, but the cursings. He had warned Israel that their sin would bring about such cursings, and they're in a period now where they have exercised great license, and they now experience their God coming to them again in this great cycle of deliverance that we see in this book, and taking them and delivering them from the penalty, and thereby preserving His embryonic kingdom, thereby bringing through His remnant and preserving them and blessing them and setting them apart for his own purposes. They have just come off of a period of approximately eight decades of peace. Ehud was a just judge who had defeated the Moabites. And in this period of the judges, as we look at these individuals who are raised up to lead Israel, the the title judge, in a sense, is a little bit misleading in that we ordinarily think of judges exercising judicial purview, but their responsibilities as we come to know it were primarily military. Uh, You know, they had commanders and so forth, but these were, were military leaders principally tasked with the deliverance of God's people and seeing that God's people are where they need to be to experience the deliverance that only God can bring as oppressors close in on them from the outside because of their sin that God has committed Himself to punishing. But here it is, 
evil done in the eyes of the Lord again and crying out to him and God delivering. Now, there are four things that I would like for us to observe here. Obviously, we don't have time to exhaustively look at this passage, but I would like to consider four uh, general truths with you that I believe come directly from the text. First of all, we need to notice Israel's lack of a genuine witness. We see this in the first verse. Their lack of an authentic testimony to the favor of their God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. That implies that before the popular judge died, who had done right by them, there was at least some semblance of righteousness, which therefore sets Ehud off as a kind of external impetus for righteousness. And then you take that away, and there is no inspiration to do what they knew they needed to do, and they begin to sin. That's what we today call backsliding in more than one tradition, that term is used, that whatever drives us to holiness, when when that's off the scene suddenly, uh, then we uh, have a tendency to go back to doing what it is we were doing before that is out of accord with God's prescriptive demands and desires. And there is trouble. We know that our testimony is the only indication at the end of the day of the presence within our hearts of an understanding of the authenticity of God's grace as it is manifested to us in His covenant favor. By that I mean, if you have a bad testimony, you block the view of the world to the very grace you profess. And that's where Israel is at at this point. And it's not ours to examine these individuals on different levels. Obviously, some of them perhaps had truly believed in God and were falling back into their own ways. Some perhaps had not turned the salvific corner, if you will. But whatever the case is, the problem here is that there is a neglect of the favor of God known before the world by obedience, and their witness shows it. You know, the author to the Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews, says in that great epistle after the beginning chapter and the placement of Jesus as superior over the angels and setting him off as the only one who can bring deliverance for sinners, the writer begins the second chapter and he says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, he asks, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's where Israel is here. She is caught up in neglect of her great salvation... And God is faithfully bringing the ramifications of that in order to deliver. So he will again establish in her an authentic witness to his gracious ways. I wonder if if we think that much about our own witness before the world. Can we be charged and found guilty of living before God in obedience as a response to His grace that in no way is elicited by us, in no way is drawn unto us out of Him by what we do. I think I've shared with some of you before that I have very much appreciated the ministry of the historic First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, which I think is now about 30 years shy of its bicentennial. Now, you know, with large, wealthy, southern churches, there comes a great deal of criticism. Oh, those people, they're so wealthy. They, they go to church out of obligation. They're motivated by culture. Some of them think they own the pews. They sit in this. You know, all these, these criticism after criticism, mostly born of just wanting to take pot shots at the ones on top, as it were. That's who we are, I believe, at our core so often. But I love that church. I I love its history. I I love 
the, the history of its ministers, John Reed Miller and Donald Patterson. And in the 80s, that church was pastored by Dr. James Baird, who is now almost 89 years young and is still preaching. He's one of only two of the original founding fathers, along with Kennedy Smart, who's now 92, of the Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination. But Dr. Baird has come to be a good friend over the years, and one morning he had preached to this packed crowd, and he'd come down out of the pulpit, and he was standing before the Lord's table about to fence it and administer the sacrament. When he looked up, and there was a man who had just come into the building off the street and was standing in the balcony in the front row and began to speak and say, I have a message from God for all of you. Now, this is... 1,500 people there, seersucker south, ladies with hats on, on local television, and here's worship being disrupted. And he, he said that. And when he stopped, Dr. Baird, in his very calm, inimitable style, said, Sir, I'm going to lead us in prayer now. Let's all bow our heads. And Dr. Baird prayed, Lord, deal with all of us here and deal with this man. And he concluded the prayer, and he looked up, and the man was gone. He had gone down into the narthex. The deacons and ushers there had ministered to him. He had exited the building, and he had been identified by the guard outside as a man who had just come out of prison. And he arrested him in frustration over what had just happened, and he said to the man, you're probably going to go back to jail for this. And that man looked at the officer and asked, Why can't you deal with me kindly like those men in the church did? Boy, I mean, one moment where the people of God got it right, that that he had been taken in and shown... Love, because the church, in fact, was not full of stuffy, legalistic, morally minded people, but people who were shot through with the sense of the grace they possessed being not of themselves, but only of God, only shown to them because of God's desire to show it, and they had ministered to this man in love. That's, that's a picture of an authentic witness before the world, Israel lacks it. They will be given it again, though they will be faithless again. But God continues to be true to His own. And it is ours to, by His grace, have the presence in our words and actions of a genuine testimony to His favor that comes to us only because He is pleased to show it. Israel lacks a genuine witness, and this passage calls for us to have an authentic one because we realize that we're still sinners. We rise up every day, and we stand in need of the same grace, and we stand before God, and there is nothing that we have to give to Him. We need a Savior every hour. As the hymn says, we, we need Him. We're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. May He seal our hearts to Him yet again, and may that produce in us a genuine witness. Now, secondly, not only do we have Israel's lack of a genuine witness, but this is countered by Israel's supply of a complete deliverance. That is, that they have a bottomless well of favor that is coming to them from God alone, and the deliverance that they will experience is not partial, but it's full. And so there is a singular supply of deliverance, and that deliverance, because it is from the power of God alone, it is sufficient. It doesn't just half do the job, but the scope of it completely delivers from the enemy. And we're informed of this, as you see, as the, the text moves along. The writer holds together 
both the reality of the power being with the Lord and what he does being complete. As we just scan the text, we notice this. For example, in verse 6, she asks the question, that is Deborah, of her officer Barak, the commander, has not the Lord the God of Israel commanded you. I realize in some of your translations it's not in interrogative form, but I I like the translation that is. Verse 7, I, that is the Lord implied, will draw out Sisera, and I, the Lord implied, will give him into your hand. Verse 9, Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera or hand him over. That's what that means, sell into the hand of a woman. In verse 14, as we continue on, she says to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And so he goes down from Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men. Verse 15, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army. Verse 16b, Not a man was left. And even in verse 23, So on that day God subdued Jabin. So you see that there is the singularity of God doing the work in terms of its efficacy coupled with the completeness and the perfection with which he takes care of the problem, not in some half-done way, but wholly. Now, as soon as I say that, you may be wondering, as you look at verse 24, well, does there not seem to be a little bit of credit that goes to men? Where we read, And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Until they destroyed? What's our writer doing here? I suggest to you that what he's doing after having emphasized God's work and the totality of it, he is giving us a picture of the vehicle through which and by which men receive and experience the favor of God that comes in whatever the victory is. Think of it in these terms. You know, in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11, we read there in the 32nd verse the name of Barak. He's there with a list of many others. And the 33rd verse says that they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. That is, they came into the full experience of what God had promised to do for them. And the thing we always emphasize as we look at Hebrews 11 and that that great list there is by faith these things were done. By faith. That is the writer's way of reminding us, lest we forget, that what these heroes, as we would call them, did when they were working on behalf of the God who had called them into His service, it was He at the end of the day who was really doing the work. The writer shows us something of the instrumentality whereby those benefits accrue to the people of God when he says, by faith. Now, Judges 4.24 is a by faith kind of statement. That is, the instrument of which those things are received has come through the actions of men But there is no effectiveness in and of themselves in the works of men, but rather they are the instruments of God. It's interesting as you look ahead in Judges chapter 5, verse 11, in this great song that Deborah sings, and in which Barak joins in and other singers, in verse 11b it says, They recite the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of His warriors in Israel. And it sounds as though somehow God and His warriors are sharing credit. No, the text means that the righteous acts of the Lord are spoken, and in light of that, there is an identification of the obedient acts of His warriors being the vehicle through which they experience, that is, the people of God, the righteous workings of the Lord for their betterment for the benefit of their souls. Now, as we turn to what many consider to be the heartbeat of this 
passage in verses 8 and 9, we come to the issue of why it is that Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. You know, this, this has been used across the spectrum down through the years in the church with regard to issues of gender or the position of women in leadership. Egalitarians have used this text and argued, ah, see, women, uh, God has put women in leadership positions, so it's okay. Uh, complementarians have countered with things like, oh, no, that's not what this is. This is, this is man wimping out. And this is God showing us that uh, sometimes He has to bring women along because men drop the ball. Now, I don't know how we reach all of these conclusions because there's absolutely nothing in the text that lends itself to such. But what is going on here is a desire of Barak to have the appointed figure go up with him because he knows lest she, uh, if she is not with him, there will be failure. He doesn't question why she was appointed. Uh, he doesn't wonder why or balk at the notion, but he asks seemingly in the desperation that would have characterized any one of us in the moment, if you don't go, I won't go. And she commits, of course, faithfully to being with him. You see, it's the same principle that we find in Exodus chapter 33. Do you remember Moses' reticence to go up without the presence that is the Lord Himself to lead the people? Moses says, if your presence, Exodus 33.15, does not go with me or with us in some translations, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You see that witness principle at work there too? You see the concern on the part of Moses about the message that will be sent to God's people? Uh, That's the same thing we have present in Judges chapter 4. And the Lord answers Moses saying, I will do everything you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So you see, Barak is operating on that same principle. Even as Moses would not go forward without the presence of the Lord, Barak does not want to go up and to undertake this battle without the presence of his appointed one who represents him as judge. And God's pleasure is with His people. That's what He told Moses. And that will be the witness, ultimately, of the outcome in Judges chapter 4, that He is with His people, their troubles to bless and to sanctify to them their deepest distress. To have them know that it is of God and of God Alone, And we see how it is that he's going to, that is, the Lord is, by his Spirit, going to reaffirm this in the raising up of a second woman. You see, he raises up Deborah to culturally bring a sense of shame to Barak. Not because Barak's an incapable or a, 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 an unfaithful servant, but because this is the Lord's providential methodology of making sure that he and he alone gets the credit for it. And, and the whole army is routed, but Sisera gets away. Who brings the death knell to Sisera? A woman. So you see, there is the shaming of men in the context of the day, not because men can't do the things men are called to do, but because God's objective in this instant is to set Himself off as the one whom alone brings the victory. So at the end of the day, there will be no credit leaking out to man, male or female, but it will be known that God and God alone is the Savior of His people. I love the way Michael Wilcock puts this. He says, Barak's words in verse 8 do not after all express flat disobedience. Indeed, while it is true that he sets conditions, he does promise that if the conditions are met, he certainly will go. And what Deborah says about Barak missing the honor of killing Sisera, this is not necessarily a rebuke. It is just as likely to be a plain statement of fact. 
go up with me. And she gives the charge, up! And as God's commander goes, it is clear before the watching world that it is he and he alone who is giving complete deliverance to his people. He is the supply. Perhaps it's best summed up by the words of that hymnist in How Firm a Foundation, one quite familiar to you, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. My grace, all sufficient, will be your supply. Thirdly, I want us to notice God's precision in a sovereign governance. God's precision in a sovereign governance. In the 11th verse, we meet this fellow named Heber, and he's an interesting figure. He is a Kenite, a descendant of Hobab, and Hobab was Moses' brother-in-law. And at some point along the way, they had allied with the Israelites, the Kenites. As a matter of fact, that's what Heber means. It means ally. The problem, as is indicated here in this account, is that Heber, at the end of the day, allied with the wrong side in the conflict. If you do a little reading on the history of what happened here, you will find out that he had been a faithful man married to this faithful woman, and somewhere along the way as he fell privy to the armies that Jabin was amassing and the power that he had garnered in northern Canaan, he decided that when things really got bad, he'd rather be in favor with that one than Israel. He sold out. He was, in a sense, a Benedict Arnold here. He was one who didn't trust. He had the Israelite condition, if you will, even though he was a foreigner. And when we read that he is relocated that he had pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanananim. We don't know much about this tree other than the fact that it being a, a significant location, and it's important that we have the words near Kadesh there because Kadesh had been a city of refuge, and it literally means set apart or holy. And so Kadesh, for God, represented his setting right what was wrong for his people. And here is this man who is pitching his tent, that is, tabernacling. He has, of purpose of mind, a temporary positioning there. Ultimately, as verse 12 uh, no doubt indicates, that's why we're told in verse 11, Haber took position there. He was the one that tipped Sisera off about Barak having gone up to Mount Tabor. And all of this, you see, to maintain the favor of the one to whom he had shifted his allegiance. But God had other plans. You see, there's this relocation. He puts himself there for one reason, and God has him there for another. What he meant, if I might use the language of Genesis 50, for evil, God was going to take and override and use for good. And I very simply want to ask you, do you see this kind of precision in your life? Do you take the time to notice the way in which God particularly governs you and those whom you know and love in His sovereignty? That from the big things all the way down to the little things, you see Him there getting His people in position to favor you even if their motives are impure. Do, do, do you see that enormity in your God? I've often thought that if we could somehow recapture our sense of the largeness and the greatness of our God, that we wouldn't spend so much time viewing our problems as mountains when in fact they are molehills. God can do anything. I think of my friend Ray Bothell, who was in a Bible study about 15 years ago with five or six men. A tall man of about 6'4", fell flat on his face with a heart attack. And it just happened that there was someone in the Bible study who knew how to use a defibrillator in the closet. 
when he fell, he broke his nose. And it just happened that someone in the group was an ear, nose, and throat doctor who could pack his nose in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And you say, happenstance? You say, no, this is God putting everything necessary by the trees of Zananim, if you will, near his place of intended commitment to setting his people apart again unto righteousness. Now, we must marvel in this faithfulness of our God. I remember an account that Dr. Steve Brown told about a man from the Seattle, Washington area, a Christian counselor who was on vacation with his family as far away as he could be and still be in the same country near Orlando, Florida. And someone called this counselor while he was on vacation, had a problem. His secretary informed the lady that the man was not reachable. And she said, well, I really need to talk with him. She gave him a phone number that was to an office in Washington State. This man is in Orlando, Florida, and is walking in front of a Dairy Queen that had a public phone in front of it. As he was walking past, the phone rang. You ever had that happen? We don't have phone booths or public phones anymore. But some of you may remember having had that experience. You go by a public phone. It's ringing. What do you do? You're going to answer? I mean, what, what are you going to say? He answers it. And the woman on the other end says, is this Dr. So-and-so? He says, yes. And she began to talk about her problem. And he ministered to her. And, and she said, oh, I'm so grateful that I caught you in your office. And he said, lady, you haven't caught me in my office. I'm on a public phone just outside of Orlando, Florida. She had transposed a couple of numbers that the woman had given her. And she'd reached this man. And he walked back to the car. And he got in. And he said to his wife, honey, you won't believe this. But God knows where I am. (laughs) Do you understand that God knows where you are? We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks as we look at Psalm 11 and the idea of His eyes seeing all. But this is what it means that God powerfully preserves and governs all of His creatures and all of their actions. And we see it here very simply but profoundly, and we ought to rejoice in it. But fourthly and finally, I want us to see God's mystery in a select source. God's mystery in a select source. And I'm speaking in context here of this individual J.L. J.L., it is believed by most scholars, was in fact an Israelite woman. She was married to a man who one time had been faithful, but she is set here upon reversing the faithlessness of her husband. That's what we see in her. And there are several different ways we can slice the last ten or so verses of this passage, or the last eight, I should say, and We can look at several things here. For example, we can see that J.L. prefigures Christ in the sense that she is the one who crushes the skull of the enemy. And we know that Christ ultimately is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. That is there as well. We also see, even though she is sinful and finite, in the way in which she takes him in and meets the requirements of general hospitality and protocol in this culture, she adumbrates Christ in the sense that she possesses what she ought to possess to be God's instrument in the completion of the defeat of His enemy. We see that in the kindness. She says, come in twice, turn aside, turn aside to me, verse 18. And she said to him, uh, Do not be afraid. And she takes him in and covers him with a rug. She's showing him all of this kindness. And he asks for water and and she gives him milk. That's actually what her name means, a mountain goat. She gives him goat milk, gives him high quality milk. And he asks that if anyone comes that she might deny his presence there. And that ends it. And then when he's fast asleep, she comes and she deals the final blow and even as in verse 22 when Barak arrives and she can show him the man who was sought in his defeat Jesus comes to the father 
and shows his wounds. And thereby, there is known defeat for death, hell, and the grave for his people. So there are all kinds of things that we can deduce from this that are very good and edifying and accurate. But I would call your attention as we in our redemptive historical enthusiasm, often miss things. Don't forget the fact that even as Jael has driven the peg and killed the enemy, as it were, Jesus will do the same, but in order to drive the peg, he had to undergo the peg. In order to set his people free from their ultimate enemy, he, in a sense, had to become the enemy on their behalf. He had to become the one who represented and indeed took the blows that you and I deserve to satisfy the justice of God. And so as we look to this, we remember that. And as we continue to look to Christ, the greatest judge, the final judge, the one before whom all will stand in his tribunal at the last, we need to to think about that that we have the need and he has undergone the peg of God's wrath in order to show us before the Father as those who have escaped death because he has shown the man, that is the enemy of sin, that the Father sought, that the work is complete. Now, as I indicated at the outset, Uh, Judges, in many places, is a rated R book. These uh, passages, particularly like verses 21 of Judges 4, are the ones that you like to sort of leave out of Sunday school literature for children and everything. But what do we say about the graphicness of these things that have happened? Well, again, we could say many things. But I think God is showing us and not leaving out any of the gore just what is necessary for the defeat of the ultimate enemy. He's showing us what has to be done so that we'll get it. And have you noticed as you move forward through the Old Testament into the New Testament that descriptions of these kinds of things lessen in their graphic that we're told something like this so specifically, or in Judges 3.20 about Eglon and Ehud and and the grossness of it, not not just to serve as some kind of uh, titillation or fascination of the flesh, but that we might see that God will take the violence that is the result of sin in the world, and through that he will bring about a new creation. And he will redeem his people. And that is good and necessary. But as we come closer to Christ, we need to begin to turn our eyes off of the graphicness. On to the reality that what Jesus endured as he underwent the peg of the cross is something that cannot be visually quantified in terms of its ultimate effect. Have you ever noticed how relatively quiet the Gospels are in terms of their description of what Jesus endured. I mean, when you go, for example, to Matthew, you read that Matthew says that Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Mark says, and they led him out to be crucified. John says, and Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Interestingly enough, Luke doesn't say anything in anticipation of the particulars of Christ's death. And I'm always struck by how it is that in so-called Jesus films, the thought behind the production is if we can just make this graphic enough that somehow we'll be convincing of people as to what Jesus really endured. When, When the whole point is you cannot see the judgment of God in someone's body. You can see them bleed. Many people have been crucified. Many people have have endured horrific deaths, but only one has borne in his body the just judgment of God for every last sin of every last person for whom Jesus was giving himself. And that can't be visually quantified. 
If Jesus had been crucified in the video era and we could pop in a video back here and watch that ghastly event again, as horrific as it would be for you like it was those who witnessed, you still wouldn't see what he really endured. Bringing to pass the reality of that refrain in that modern praise song, Here I Am to Worship, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. This is the mystery of God's select source. Oh, we know our theology. We know why it had to be Jesus, fully God, to satisfy God, fully human, to represent sinful human beings. We know all the textbook answers. But what we're called to do is to be awash in the mystery of it all. To say with Charles Wesley, "'Tis mystery all the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design and leave yourself there? And if you will, you will find how great the salvation you profess is in the face of your need of it. And you and I will have the joy of Resurrection Day, every day, because we see the great work of God that He has done on behalf of sinners, and we profess with the hymnist of that hymn we're about to sing, I need Thee, precious Jesus. Judges chapter 4 calls from the halls of history for us to see that we are far worse than we ever could understand that we are. And our God is so much greater and more faithful and more gracious and merciful than we ever imagined He could be. May we go forth, even this week, testifying to such a great salvation. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our transgressions and sins and our desires to do what in our own estimation is right, and cause us to come forth and bear great fruit in testifying to the great reality that you have given your all, not merely to, in some half-hearted way, save us, but to complete our deliverance. May we live as those possessive of a complete deliverance, for the sake of our greatest and final judge, Jesus. Amen.